0: Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Framerate. Today, my name is Dan, and I'm here with my partners... Jamie. And Patrick. And today, we're going to talk some Star Wars, which is kind of a rare occasion. Uh, we are going to cover The Mandalorian Season 1 today, which I've been really excited to do. And yes, there's a cat in my room.
1: Reggie <laughs> is, like, so loud
0: right now. I love That it. is Reggie. <laughs> so, anyways... Uh, yeah i just finished season two which we're not gonna give any spoilers to in this episode but obviously we're gonna talk spoilers for season one so i guess i'll go back to since you guys keep up with previews and news and stuff um i'll toss it to jamie first when did you first start learning that they were gonna do this (laughs) when i
2: fucking hate it no (laughs) um no i first heard about mandalorian i don't even really remember Um, or what do you remember hearing oh no okay so
1: jamie's like i was living in the commune as a child
2: (laughs) (laughs) i was a wee lad (laughs) of 62 (laughs) uh no so the rise of skywalker was supposed to come out um so what is this 2019 at the end of 2019 and um Disney plus was announced earlier that year and they said they were releasing Mandalorian season one. Um, and of course I was excited about both really, really excited. I, you know, there's a lot there. There's a lot to sort of the lore of man, uh, Mandalore and the mythology and they're creating something new and it's a new character and it's going off in a different direction. So I was pretty stoked. Um, and then, I saw Rise of Skywalker once, and I hated it. And I gave away all my Star Wars toys. Uh, <laughs> uh, and I saw Mandalorian. And I thought it was really great, and uh, it was fresh and new, and nostalgic, and um, went in a, di- in a different direction. It was a little safe, pretty safe, but it felt like the Star Wars that I remembered. It it really just rekindled the love that I have for for this for sort of the world that George Lucas created. And yeah, those are my first impressions of the, of the show. Cool. Patrick, how about you?
1: Yeah. I don't know when the first uh, like inklings of the, I don't, I don't remember like when it was announced formally, but I do remember the first teaser trailer for it very vividly because of the shot of the stormtrooper helmets on Tatooine on the pole. Yes. Right, and I remember right. everybody was like, this is, gonna, we were like, this is going to be so dark. <laughs> like this is going to be Star Wars at its most like base. Um, and of course it wasn't quite like that. In, in some ways it is a more kind of adult Star Wars and, and, uh, some some aspects, I think, but um, it was not as dark as I think we intended it to be. For me, a lot of my earliest memories of this coming down the pipeline was is wrapped up with you guys, because when I was in LA in twenty nineteen, Disney Plus came out. So this was like something that it was like the day that I flew back. So I was flying back to watch the Mandalorian basically, which was a pretty freaking awesome feeling because I was super pumped for it because for many of us, Star Wars fans out there, you know, the, this, the, the, the Mandalore culture, as Jamie alluded to before, is super fascinating. It's something that, you know, uh, has existed in expanded universe materials for a very long time and in all sorts of different, you know, offshoots of the main continuity and um gets it's been popped up in the main continuity from time to time and this was a full series dedicated to it and you know at that point of course we didn't know anything about din you know we didn't we had no clue i mean the big reveal of course was grogu who nobody knew about knew about before the show came out and that became yeah they kept it like, tight yeah and that became a genuine cultural phenomenon and remains to this day I, th- I mean that's like a character that nobody will stop talking about because it's mm-hmm. just so in- instantly lovable and adorable and it also represents a lot of things that i'm sure we'll get into about you know fatherhood and about star wars and about you know being a, a child again etc but yeah for me th- uh, I, uh, I i really i look at it as uh something that i was just super super happy about and uh and i remain to this day season one to me is weaker than season two i think season two is like almost flawless season one it has some like major flaws in it i think yeah i would agree i'd agree but uh, but on the whole i i, I mean i, I absolutely a both seasons of it but se- season one you know was a little bit more of a kind of up and down experience season two was like freaking full throttle the whole time
2: the only thing i found wrong with season two even though we're not getting into it, is the same thing that i had an issue with in season one and that was namely amy sidaris's character i felt like she's completely out of place <laughs> really uh, she just ripped me right out of the experience of star wars her huh. timing was strange everything it was just odd but the show is so successful and fantastic i just blow right past it you know like you don't even really process it because the the story that they have going um the journey that he's on with grogu and meeting everyone that he meets and the the production levels the the details the minutia um the quietness the the calmness the the cerebral quality to the show is also really amazing there's stretches in the in these shows where there's no dialogue for five six seven minutes and it's just and he's just exploring even in the first you know we're talking about the first season where he's on um tatooine and he's on the dewback with the other guy wheel yeah and there's probably the first 20 minutes of that show where there's no talking just sort of maybe a couple words here and there and it's just glorious I love it it's what made a new hope so great was is when Luke is on Tatooine, and you just hear the music—that really amazing, special, magical music—and you you're seeing the the crevices of Tatooine and the rock formations, and you feel the Force almost around you. Um, and that's what I felt like when uh, I saw episode or season one.
0: Also, since we're mentioning Quill, I just want to make sure that this very uh, important part of my notes gets thrown in here. Nick, motherfucking Nolte. Yep, <laughs> I wrote that down because I was like, "Oh, I forgot Nick Nolte's in this. Freaking great! Such a great voice." um Yeah, I was uh, as usual not paying attention to previews, trailers, etc., but I couldn't help but see the images, the stormtrooper helmets, and all that. And yeah, like I. Again, I kind of describe myself in general as like about a 3 out of 10 Star Wars fan, maybe a 4. Like, I like the old films. Um, I don't really love any of the newer ones except for Rogue One. I'm a huge fan of Rogue One. I still haven't seen... I still haven't seen Solo and I still haven't seen uh, Rise of Skywalker because I really just lost interest in the trilogy. And I know we're not here to talk about those movies, but I'm just for context. Like, Oh, well, yeah, we know.
2: fucking are. <laughs> <laughs> no, but just
0: so for the context. Last epi-
1: the last two episodes, like, no, please, Jamie please. has tried to get the interview subject to complain about the sequels. And they both been like <laughs> Rise of Skywalker. And I like, didn't try
2: to get them to complain. Do you really like it? And hear- they're
1: both like, no, I like love those movies. This comes up every episode.
0: Anyways, as I was saying, (laughs) so for me, I'm like, like the way I look at Star Wars is that George Lucas had some awesome ideas and the world he's create he created is phenomenal. And he also like in talking to other artists had a really good handle over, you know, planets and nomenclature and aliens and all that. Um, of the other directors and writers I've seen work in Star Wars, I don't think he's the strongest, you know, I thought I didn't like the prequels, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm always open to someone else doing something new within that world, which I think finally Disney is catching on to because we know there's all these other, um, you know, series announced. There'll be one series and there's like at least one or two characters. And, or, or there's like
2: eight Star Wars series coming. There's
0: a bunch. There's so many
1: series that at it's a the Oscars meeting, you could tell that the people – the people, uh, I don't know why I know how to pronounce that. The people uh, that, were, that were like announcing it were clearly like surprised when they switched slides. They're like, "Holy shit, we're also doing this too." There's so many new fucking series coming out. Many of at least three of them directly from the continuity established by Mandalorian, right? There's Ahsoka, mm-hmm. there's the the Boba series, and there's
2: also uh, the Book of Boba one? Fett. There's Books Cassidy of- Andor, there's which is from Rogue One. There's a bunch of them, but yeah, we yeah. digress back to.
0: Yeah, Yeah. So I like the opportunity to be able to dive into a different portion of Star Wars and still call back to creatures and planets and ideas like the Mandalorian culture and all that that people know about. And I know that there's I need to watch these, but I know there's a lot in Rebels and the Clone Wars, the animated series that talks a lot about this stuff. So I'd love to watch those because I absolutely love that part of it. Of course, admittedly, Jon Favreau took a lot of inspiration from Kurosawa films, old samurai films, spaghetti westerns, kind of uh, man with no name. And um, it works really, really well. Um, like you guys said, there are some downsides to this, especially to season one. Um, I thought some directors were certainly stronger than others. And I thought that the season started really strong and ended really strong. Kind of in the middle, it's sort of up and down. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't don't feel like I... There's no episode that I didn't enjoy parts of it. Um, I don't know who the hell got Jake Cannavale a job, uh, Bobby (laughs) Cannavale's son, but he sucks man he, i thought he was a yeah. crappy actor and a terrible a bar. Episode. he plays the he plays the gunslinger they're
2: like, oh, like the, oh yeah him Dude, he i didn't like, feel like he was bad i just felt like i would take lines seven bad i would I take like his seven
0: amy sedaris's
2: over him i thought he was just I, like, oh, oh i, I thought, thought she wish. was way worse than him way way do worse.
1: people complain yeah. about her in this i've never heard anybody yes say
2: i yeah really yeah because you're insulated patrick I think to, she's. You talked to only one other person. Oh, I loved it. Oh, me too. <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand what the big deal. Is. But yeah,
0: but when they when they hit on the strong points, they just like knocked it out of the park. I wanna, I wanna uh, later on when it comes up, I'll read my favorite quote. And but the the whole, I I thought that, and they do it in both seasons. But just talking about this season for now, they really dug seriously into the feeling of the empire as like the nazis you know it wasn't just uniforms anymore it becomes more outspoken and part of the philosophy of some of the characters um as again i'll talk about later with the uh the client but i i love when they dig into that because it's Without even necessarily adding more killing or violence, it's what adds a layer of like darkness and grittiness to the themes and to the plot. And I absolutely love that. Like, I hope they do more of that um, because it makes the stakes feel that much more serious. And then, of course, they did it in Rogue One and they do it here. Like, a lot of characters die, um, which is cool, you know? Um, and stormtroopers seem to either be able to shoot. When like always be able to shoot when they're shooting at Mando, he's like a friggin' laser magnet uh, or blaster magnet, and then you know when they're shooting at cans, it's kind of the old classic trope that stormtroopers can't shoot. But um, yeah, I had a lot of fun watching this season for sure. It is
1: astonishing how poor the marksmanship of the <laughs> Galactic Empire is. It is like is truly astonishing. Um, a couple of continuity things I, I want to just like flag that that have come up so far. For one thing, the third series is Rangers of the New Republic. So that's that's the other series that's coming out, which of course helps set where this happens in Star Wars. Live Time action, I think so. Isn't maybe is it not? There's one
2: about. that's not live action. The rest I think that's the one that's I, not. Yeah. I think oh, that's, okay. I, think it's I don't like, it's know. Animated.
1: Okay. Um, but that which I'm imagining is like the flowny stuff, you know, like uh, like uh, Rebels and Clone Wars. Um, so that though the New Republic right is a big hint as to when that takes place, which is probably coming after the events of Mandalorian, which makes sense because it's a spinoff. Um, but also when you mentioned the client, right, which who is a former leader in the Galactic Empire, which is dissolved during the time of the of of the events of Mandalorian. Which What's I dissolved? Love, the Empire. It's oh you know, oh oh ruins. Because this is right?
0: in between the New Order and the Empire, right? Yeah, it's so a the, few the, years
1: after the the collapse at the end
0: of Return of the Jedi. Right. It's five years after after Episode Six. Yeah. And so
1: there's, so that, that I think in particular is so fascinating because we see the first order emerge afterwards, which is basically just a, you know, clone of the, of the empire with just a bigger death star, right? Which is, which I think is pretty boring. Um, But you, you have this like wonderful little middle period where you have, it's sort of like the Nazis on the run, you know, the ones who escaped the trials at Nuremberg and are living in Argentina that, 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 like, I, I always think of that when I think of the client, right? They're underground, they're in hiding, they're living under assumed identities, they're still engaged in black market trade they're still engaged in weapons dealing they're still doing these underground things because they the, the evil didn't die right like the, the movement continues even after the citadels fall and i think to me the empire is most interesting probably then other than I, I mean i i think i i think that the way the empire is portrayed you know with moff tarkin in the first film and everything i i do i do love that I like just because I love Peter Cushing and I love the aesthetics mm-hmm. of that. Oh, for sure. Like, but to me, the the most interesting portrayal of the Empire is in Mandalorian because I think it is what it actually is, which is this like unsheathed evil secret element, and you see like that's where that's the the seed of the future comes from. So, yeah, the fact that they're all in hiding, the fact that the client who previously wielded enormous power um, is you know living in this underneath like. Bar somewhere uh, on this desert planet. I think it's so. It's just so. It's so interesting to see that, like, even though they've fallen, they're still so insidious.
2: You know, but and what's I, I would say what makes them even more insidious is you don't really know who's in control, who's leading these. Who's leading the Empire, even in the Remnants? Who's in control? We don't really know. Is it Moff Gideon? Maybe he's a player, but we don't know if he's calling all the shots. Because there is some, there's a plan in place. There's something happening with the Empire. We're seeing shades of, but we're not seeing all of it. I'm still interested to see who's really in control of the Empire. I think there's a really good story there. And I feel like Filoni and Favreau know this. Hats off to both of them. I think uh, whatever people might think of, the the sequels you really do have two people who are for all intents and purposes in control they've taken the reins they've been given some autonomy by Bob Iger um to run with their story and they've been involved certainly Dave Filoni's been involved with Star Wars for so long that the mythology he crafted in Rebels and um what's the other one Clone Wars Clone Wars yeah sorry um It's really rich and substantive and it's well planned out and you can just feel even in these shows, even if they're a little bit uneven here and there, there's mythology and a story that's large, that's at work. It's not, they're not making it up as they go along, which really serves the show well.
0: Yeah, I think part of the success and failure of each episode on its own is is kind of um, the success and failure of them bringing back nostalgia. Like, it just depends on how they do it, and it depends on how much they're doing it. In some episodes, the nostalgia is awesome, and you're like, oh, look at this race that I had only seen in Star Wars for like a second now has like a prominent role, or, or you're seeing more of them, um, or little throwbacks to like the dark saber and, and things like that. But um, yeah, it doesn't always work, you know, like for me... Um, Yeah. One of the weaker episodes was uh, the sanctuary episode where like this group of bandits has grabbed the ATSD and it's got the red windows. And it's like it was never it was never uh, depicted as something that was being driven by humans. It like you never see heads in those windows. It Mm -hmm. was like created to look like this like monster, you know, and I was like, okay, it's cool to see it. But like that episode really threw me off um and
2: it seemed yeah. incongruous with who mando is oh he's mm-hmm. on this planet in this village oh there's this woman who's kind of falling for him even though she's never seen his face and he's sort of pondering maybe he should stay it just felt out of sync for whatever reason
1: yeah and I, and i yeah, think that episode sucks that, that, that's like the, the first <laughs> <laughs> I, I was that's like true. oh my god the series is like going so off the rails but it's interesting, though, Bryce Dallas Howard, of course, directed that. She also directed one of the strongest episodes of the second season, The air. Yes. Season.
2: Oh, my God. So like, Amazing. So, so
1: it clearly wasn't just her. I think what they were doing with that... You know, well, Dan, you were, you were going to say something. I, I Just very briefly, I, I think part of what happened there is that they were using that as a chance to explore other sides of his character and that they were using it as a chance to try to, like, try a different approach because Star Wars has never been this episodic before. Like, Star Wars has never been writ over this many episodes of one thing, you know, that's planned from the very beginning. You mean in live action? Thing. In live action, right? Yeah. yeah. And so it was a big deal for them to do that, and I think from a format standpoint, they wanted to try some things out, and I think that the Sanctuary episode, like it's it's well made it's well cast it's well acted for the most part and it just falls flat because tonally it just feels really disjunct so mm-hmm. that's it, it's an interesting like you know it, but it's a, it's an experiment that I'm glad exists because we see some of the things that happen in that episode come back later from in terms of a format standpoint and and ring true so it, you know they they tried it maybe anyway, dan go ahead
0: No, I was just going to say, yeah, like, I I think you can feel them trying things in this season. And in fact, if you're optimistic before the second season came out, it's kind of like, okay, I feel like they have a good chance of nailing the second season, because now the characters are established, they figured out what's popular, they figured out what works. But they really were trying a lot of things in the first season. I think the other thing that is both a strength and weakness of Mando in general, but speaking of season one, is the sort of repetitive formula of go to new planet, find person. That's going to help you achieve your mission, but you have to do X thing for them first, right? They kind of recycled that a lot in one or another different iteration. And again, I'm not blaming them for it. It it was a good idea to then explore different planets, different situations, but it can kind of wear on you and get a little bit old. But I will say that by the time I started feeling that way in season one, um, um, after the prison break episode which is like a weird one because it's like okay cool they're bill burr is like walking into like a star wars sci-fi franchise and he was fine you know but the episode itself i didn't but then also clancy brown is in this covered in prosthetics and you're like yeah.
2: wow
0: well, it's crazy that clancy brown <laughs> took this role so it's like again there's something interesting in every episode but by episode six I was starting to have serious doubts of where the season was going and whether I was gonna like the direction they took it because I was like, man, if they keep doing this cheap stuff, I'm just like not gonna be into this. And then I feel like chapters seven and eight, the seventh and eighth episodes just knocks it out of the park because they go hard on again this dark empire, the real stakes, um, you know, people dying, the droid sacrificing itself, mando constantly fighting about you know taking the helmet off there's just so much great stuff in that i don't know if you guys saw this by the way in like the trivia but the uh 501st the fan club the star wars fan club the stormtrooper guys that have all the armor they brought all those guys on to film those last two episodes probably out of a mutual thing where it's like we can pay them almost nothing they're just gonna be stoked to be in a star wars film but also they just didn't have the budget to make all that armor and so it was so much easier and i'm like That is just great when fandom and the creators and everything just coincides and it's like they've made those guys lives you know like they're they they, you can see the picture where they take their helmets off and like they're all taking the picture with the cast and i'm like that's just so awesome i'm so glad whoever made that decision or made that happen did it because you wish every franchise did something like that for the fans you know
1: yeah the the seventh and eighth episode to me is when everything just crystallizes and it proves itself to have been a masterpiece like like yeah because i i I like prisoners the sixth episode a lot it's sort of an alien but it's like but it's It's, you know, it's cool. But I agree that by that point I was like, what the fuck is the tone of this thing? Like, we've been going whiplash back and forth and back and forth between different things for so long now. You know, the, the previous three episodes were all, like, completely different from one another. The Prisoner's episode was, like, this kind of vague sci-fi horror feel. It was just very weird. And then the seventh episode comes, and we see what the we, and we see what we were alluding to earlier, which is that the Empire is not gone. The Empire is just in hiding, right? We see the reveal of, of Moff Gideon, who's a fucking astounding character. Another Giancarlo Esposito character who was just instantly Um, indelible esposito (laughs) Giancarlo esposito but i mean just an instant he actually his dad is italian you know he actually is like Mm -hmm. uh, he's biracial i think yeah yeah yeah, and his mom's african-american um So there, uh, I just think that, uh, that, that reveal is legendary. Also the fact that the dark saber comes out in the eighth episode Mm -hmm. and you realize that that's where it went after it was taken from the Mandalore, like there's, there's a lot to unpack there. And the themes in those last two episodes, I think are just like, so great. So for one thing, the seventh episode, of course, was directed by Deborah Chow, which was awesome. Um, and then Taika Waititi, who's like one of the best filmmakers alive right now, made the eighth mm-hmm. episode. And it's not surprising mm-hmm. at all. The, I mean, the eighth episode to me is like just an astonishing achievement in television. Yeah. But it's not my favorite. My favorite episode of the season. Uh, and my favorite episode of the Mandalorian period is the second episode. I absolutely fucking adore.
2: Is that when he's riding through the the, the quiet one where they're riding through the yeah. terrain there's on there's like t- no yeah. dialogue yeah. Yeah. in Yeah, I love it. Me too, me too. It's
1: just this it's- very simple setup where the Jawa just like screwed up his ship. Yep. And then the whole thing is just a simple scenario and it's a short episode, like 27 minutes. I think it's some of Goranson's best scoring. I listen to the soundtrack of that episode like all the time. And I think it's just like the, the perfect epitome of what Star Wars was originally intended to be, which was like a pulp serial space opera, right? Like Star Wars from the beginning, of course, George Lucas like had all these grand ambitions for it. But he just wanted to make something that felt like the Saturday morning sci-fi specials that he watched as a kid. He just wanted to create, like, something fun, not thinking it would make any money. And, indeed, when we had Alan Dean Foster on, who was working with George Lucas in the immediate aftermath of Star Wars, you know, we talked to him about this stuff. You know, Alan Dean Foster was commissioned to create a sequel that wouldn't cost any money because uh, they assumed that Star Wars was going to go kerplunk and that they would have to just film something on a soundstage somewhere, right? Star Wars was never, like, intended to explode the way that it did. Um, and I think in some ways that was to the benefit of it. And I think in some ways it was to to the detriment of it. But I think Star Wars can become bloated very easily. And I think a lot of the time when people feel fed up with it, it's because it's kind of kind of bloated. There was something in the quiet moments that Jamie was mentioning earlier where you see what Star Wars kind of started as. And Mandalorian is full of those moments. And in, in, in The Child, Episode 2, it is just that moment and that moment is All it is. There's like Mm. no greater mythology tie in except for that stunning moment when the child, when Grogu saves mando saves din from the uh the mud the horn, right by the mudhorn, right the, the the rhinoceros when he saves him from the mudhorn, well by you know for, by with the force and that's like just an, an amazing moment and that is like the only larger canonical thing right that we get in that episode other than that it's just this one little tiny spaghetti western cereal and it's just a perfectly self-contained tone poem in star wars which is something that I thought I would never see, but you know, I'm not surprised. Somebody like Dave Filoni, uh, who direct, that was actually oh, that was Rick Fumuyiwa, Fum, Fum, I don't know who that is. Rick, Rick Fumuyiwa directed that one, but Dave Filoni and John Favreau obviously co-wrote all of this stuff for the most part. And like Dave Filoni was handpicked by George Lucas to create Clone Wars, like mm-hmm. you know, and Dave Filoni brought all these Star Wars fans along with him. John Favreau was working on the script for Mandalorian while he was filming the freaking Jungle Book because he was like, I really want to make a Star Wars movie. And we have this streaming service coming out. Like, can I make a TV show? And they're like, all right, make it happen. Work with Dave Filoni on it. Cause he just made 3000 episodes, you know, see if it'll work. This is a labor of love. And it's not surprising to me that the second episode, you know, cause the second episode of anything is the one that tells you what the show actually is, right? You have a pilot episode of a show that has three times the budget that tries to like cram as much as it can into the world building right off the bat. And every show has a for the most part has a really strong pilot episode, right? But it's what happens next that tells you what the show is about. And for me, the second episode, the child is what tells you what Mandalorian is about, which Mm -hmm. is, which is this guy who is between worlds, who has very strong morals and who, you know, has done things that he's not thrilled about. And this new child character that is making him reframe some of the things in his life. And it's bringing back memories of his, and they are on this adventure together. And right now, their uterus shaped spaceship is fucked up because a bunch of Jawas <laughs> to sell parts from it. and They're just uh, trapped on this planet. I just love that episode. It's great.
2: And I, I, I think it's again to mention in terms of some of the behind the scenes, um, information in terms of John Favreau's direction, he sort of, he was taking the ball. I mean, he brought Dave Filoni on board. I mean, Dave Filoni works for Lucasfilm, but they were really given autonomy. Um, to do the show the way they wanted to do, because as we know through reporting, through whether it's firing of directors, lots of stuff have come out. Some of the controversy in terms of what's been going on behind the scenes at Lucasfilm. And there's been a lot to be nervous about. Um, But they got permission to really pursue this uh, labor of love. Like you were saying, Patrick, and they did it to amazing effect. And it, it is now almost the litmus test for yes, you can do Star Wars like this, and this is what it looks like when it's done well. This is what it looks like when there's a really good, solid story. This is what it looks like when someone who's in charge um, sees the fuller picture as opposed to just a small picture. So it it I, I I'm just really grateful of the team that they have for the Mandalorian, even if I don't love everything. And like you were saying, Dan earlier, um, the whole oh I got to do something, but but first, can you do this? That was brought into season two. I mean, and it, and it does get a little bit old for sure. Like, oh, now he's got, oh, oh, oh. It, ke- it keeps happening over and over and over. But the show, it's so good. It's one of those things that we've talked about, all three of us, where if something's good, we're going to look past it. Oh, right. Do, you know, yeah. and it, we it look past leeway, it because it's, right? yeah. Um, I think if season 3 he's still doing that it might become a little bit more problematic um but i don't see that happening now that group well um but I, yeah,
0: I i could see them introducing a new direction in season 3 that would be smart of them to do for sure but i
2: don't even see the flaws like initially i know patrick when season 1 was coming out and we were talking and i'm like i don't know and i was skeptical and i was talking to you guys about it but um i don't even now that we're talking about it and season 2 is over i'd have to and I remember like that one episode that Bryce Dallas Howard uh, directed. And I was like, "Yeah, I had problems with that, and I had problems with uh, Amy Sedaris one." But largely, when I think about the Mandalorian, I don't even think about that stuff. I just think, "Wow, what a great, what amazing two series or two seasons we had!" So right.
0: Far. I mean, because as a whole, it's successful, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. I think the things it does well are more numerous than the things it does poorly, and you've got this exceptional team who's doing things for the right reasons. I think in the same way that um, I can't remember the name of the director of Rogue one right now, but in the same way, he was a huge star Ryan Wars Johnson. Fan. Thank you. No, no, that's Oh
1: no, no, him. it's Gareth Edwards. Not yeah. Johnson, there you go.
0: Gareth yeah, Edwards. Right. And <laughs> you, can, you can tell that he was a huge star Wars fan and poured his entire heart into that. And when these projects coalesce and come together with people who are working in the industry, who grew up watching this, that's when you get this trifecta of perfect storm where they really make something exceptional. Uh, we talk about Blade Runner 2049 being the same way, right? Like most of the people that worked on that set loved the first Blade Runner and were like just stoked to be there. You know what I mean? Um, I'd also like to talk a little bit about another reason this was successful is because, and I can't attribute it to just one person, but certainly John Favreau had a lot to do with this. When you have someone that embraces new technology and old tried and true methods with like the same open mindedness and the same sort of like, well, the end justifies the means here, if it looks good, and everyone's buying it and everyone's invested, then we'll do it. And so uh, if you watch any of the behind the scenes stuff, which Disney did one per episode. So they really go in depth on mm-hmm. the music, the effects, all of that. And the effects stuff is just phenomenal. And and I'm kind of an effects nerd. Like I like going into the production stuff, but it was especially true. And I, I think you guys agree uh, with the Mandalorian, you know, and there's examples like the baby Yoda, Grogu's character. They filmed a lot of it in full CGI and with the puppet just because they weren't 100% sure what they were going to use and how it was going to work out. There's, of course, a famous instance of Vern um, Herzog, like, calling John Favreau a coward and saying, you better use the puppet, you, you know, cowards, and he kind of convinced them to really try and use the puppet as much as possible, and they did, and it just looks phenomenal, and you hear these stories over and over again of different actors being on set, and the puppeteers just kind of being there and hanging out even on their lunch break, and, like, the puppet was still doing stuff. People were, like, talking to the puppet, like, off camera, like, while they weren't shooting as if he was a real thing, like, forgetting that this thing's not alive because that's how good the effect was. And, man, when you watch um, the episode where they talk about the cinematography and how they achieved that with the volume, right, this crazy sound stage that had a 360-degree, like, 70-something-foot diameter circle with a ceiling – and they used real photography, right? Then combined it with VR gaming technology to get to basically be able to shoot it in VR and get the lighting and the cameras and everything to adjust. Um, and then the way they combined, so for example, scenes um, like the Amy Sedaris episode where the Razor Crest is in a in not a hangar, but you know it's being worked on. Essentially, they built a, a real prop for the lower part of the ship, and then the ceiling, right? it connected to the ceiling where then the top of the ship was projected. And they do that all over the place. They put real objects in the foreground and real dirt that matches. And then the rest is a projection. And I'm sure a lot of it is perfected in post. And there's a lot of computer graphics to kind of just close little seams here and there and smooth things over. But the actual effect, the uh, photographical effect was so incredible. And you can see behind the scenes stuff of actors walking around and same thing. There were, people who weren't familiar and weren't there all the time, who would walk in on the set and be like, I thought you guys weren't going to build a bunch of stuff, like not realizing that they were on a virtual set because that's how real it looks even in real life. And so that is somewhere cause I'm always railing against CGI when they're overusing it or that's all they're using or we'll fix it in post. And it just looks like, you know, hot garbage. And this is so the opposite where they really embrace these old filming techniques that came from, jim henson you know and, and evolved um and then this new like gaming related stuff and it just creates such a beautiful cohesive mix of technology and practical effects that i mean i'll give him a 10 for that process that they just did something that i don't think has ever been achieved quite in that way i thought it was incredible
1: yeah, I think for a wake-up call for me, honestly, I don't know what it was, but was specifically the fact that I knew that there was a second season coming, and I knew the timeline for the release of it, and I was like, "How the fuck are they going to do that?" Like, there's so many hours of television in this show. And it's all like so intense. The production is just like enormous, you know, like let alone writing it, but just the, the actual creation of the world that they're doing, even CG in, in itself, like there's like so many assets to create. Right. I mean, the show takes place not on earth. So that, and and the first thing you know creates some challenges but they're also traveling locations all the time they're in these different flora and fauna they have to do all the world building building the production art and the conceptual phases then they have to actually do it in this mixture of real practical stuff and in camera effects and cg like you you're mentioning Dan and like that is so labor intensive and i think that was for some reason the first time it really hit me how many people work on these things like I, I you know you see the credits after a film and it's and it's kind of overwhelming but then you realize like to create 8 hours well, i guess probably about 6 hours of one cohesive story in like 8 months with that level of attention to detail and that level of and it works you're right like there's it, it almost never looks bad and not only does it almost never look bad
0: it always feels like real it feels believable oh i mean um, l- it's astonishing yeah l- like that it- amazing and and like you said it's not just the action sequences it might just be some slow walking across the desert where they're hearkening back to an old western and you're just really getting that feeling and by the way i hope patrick will talk a little bit more about ludwig what's his last name the composer yeah because he's super young and just crazy talented my
1: age yeah which is not great for my jealousy but he's fucking (laughs)
0: incredible yeah Yeah, I i mean he's had such a great career so far what a kick-ass soundtrack that really builds on. And I remember watching an interview where he's talking about it and he was saying, you know, our main character is under a mask the whole time. So you get so much less emotion out of him, even when he is experiencing it, we really have to kind of hold your hand with the mute, not hold your hand, but you know, we have to show the emotion through the music. Um, And of course uh, that's a whole other aspect is Pedro Pascal and the job that he did, not being able to show his face most of the time, but I was noticing his body movements and his body language and all that stuff, even though it's not always him in the suit. Like I think the entire sanctuary episode, he's the not even in The whole sanctuary episode, yeah. Because and he had actually a something. like or something. three quarters of the
1: filming time that he's on screen is not actually Pedro Pascal.
0: I thought he filmed a little more than that, but okay. Um, yeah. But e- well, either way, even, I mean, including his stuntman, Whoever was wearing the costume most of the time, and then him doing the voice, him doing the face, and then obviously him being in it sometimes, just the combination. In fact, if anything, it's even more of an achievement because those two or three actors working together really were able to sell the idea that this was one person. And again, I, I see it in just small movements, a wave of his hand or the way he's familiar with his equipment. Actually and the difference in equipment that he's getting that's new and him being unfamiliar with it versus the stuff that he knows how to use. I love that they make Mando like kind of fallible. Uh, Dendron is, he's not like this superhuman, right? And he gets tossed around and sometimes he's like, well, I guess I'm dead, you know, like and then gets saved at the last minute, but he's like a, a very human character. Um, and I really love the way they pull off that, Effect of making you feel like you're watching a very fallible superhero, you know, like he's he's amazing and incredible and can ride a freaking tie fighter and blow it up out of the sky and then escape on his jetpack. And you're like, what just happened, which again, that that action sequence was just flawless. Um, but you know he's he's got his issues. He gets his butt kicked, and um, yeah, that balance I thought was really great. I did want to ask uh, you guys. Feel free to comment on that. But I did want to ask probably Patrick or Jamie if you know. I heard something. It might have been in my uh, my friend Katie's podcast. Uh, they were talking about the jetpack. And how the jetpack has this like connection to the Mandalorians almost like it's, uh, I don't know if it's like mental or how they control it, but there's like a personality there almost. Can you like expound on that at all? I like had no idea because I haven't seen the cartoons and stuff. I don't know. Do you know anything about that,
1: Patrick? uh, Very little about it, but the the jetpack in the Mandalorian, so any element of Mandalorian armor, two things. One was created to fight Jedi. That's a really important thing to understand about Mandalorians in general. Mm. Um, and so that's why even things like they have that like repulsor thing in their wrist that pulls objects like that's supposed to approximate a force pull or a force push, right? Um, their jetpacks are supposed to be able to mimic, you know, Jedi ability to leap and fly all over the place. Um, the best car of course was like meant to withstand lightsabers. Like there's, you know, they, they've basically all of their technology is to be able to withstand attacks from Jedi. Interesting. Um, and the jetpack, like any other piece of Mandalorian equipment is, is essentially religious artifacts to them. That like in Mandalorian culture, for one thing, almost everything that they use is forged from Beskar because it's like a it's a it's a holy resource for them. And indeed, like the armorer that we see in, in the Amanda, like another one of these just indelible characters, right? Oh, what a cool character she what was! What a fucking man. awesome character! Like the, so she she's able to make everything from you know his plates on on the armor plating to the whistling birds, right? Using just this one ancient metal that they use, right? So the rocket pack or the jet pack that they have uh, is similarly is, is a part of this like religious artifact and to be able to use it, they have to go through all this training and they have to do a link to it. Um, and so that, that the jet pack basically becomes like one with them and then they can use it as an extension of themselves, similar to how a Jedi would be able to land after falling from 10 stories or something. But yeah, I'm not sure about the, maybe it's just the link thing.
2: that, that but, I yeah, was hearing about. there seems to be almost a, a magic or a, wizardry infused into Mandalorian mythology. There's something. Well, it's it's cool. It's cool too, because I mean, Jedi obviously
0: have their morals and their lore and everything, but it's almost like the Mandalorian's like force is their creed and their ethics and their morals. And I, I thought, Oh yeah, we only find out a little bit about this in season one, but because his group is called the creed, isn't it? Hmm. Uh, like he's part of a subgroup of Mandalorians Mm -hmm. who
1: obey the old ways. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I I don't want to get too spoilery about that. That's not brought Yeah. I was going to say that they bring that up in season two. Yeah. Okay. So we'll leave that for now, but I, I love the way that they reference Mandalorian culture and um how you realize that Mando might not be necessarily exactly the same as every other Mandalorian or whatever. Um, Yeah. And his background story of being a foundling and the flashbacks I thought were really great too. Yeah, um, I love that.
1: And it also made for some great memes with the, <laughs> I
0: don't know if you guys remember this, but like so every time the armorer would like
1: hit the best car, like, you know, he gets the flashback. Um, there are so many great memes like in late 2019 of people like juxtaposing that with like other moments where people have had like revelations on television and it's like or like like a like a scared dog where it'll be like, you know, she'll be like striking the best car and then it'll show like a dog going like
2: <laughs> and <then> It's
1: like, <laughs> it a great great meme economy
0: came out of that that's a meme economy that's hilarious
2: one more thing about the music really quick i i just want to say when i first heard the music i was like i don't know about this it not that it didn't feel like star wars I just like i don't i don't know if i like this it's just different it's weird it doesn't now i fucking love that music and it's comforting it feels like a saturday morning i'm waking up and i'm turning on mandalorian like i can't wait to do that again like we well we had like eight weeks of that and like every when did it come on? Thursday morning or Friday morning? Or it dropped like that day. Um and I was watching it every week at that time. Same time, putting it on, listening to that music. I just it was... I'm just waiting for Jamie to say, like, I listen to that soundtrack like seven
1: seven, eight <laughs> times a week. I <laughs> do the simultaneous soundtracks Jamie has playing twenty. I know,
2: hours I don't, I don't. But I do I do love Serendipity. It. It, it it is Star Wars. It really it is like the music is some of the reasons why it turned into the show and initially it was this hard sell for me because it was so different and a couple things about mandalorian or about the show that i think are interesting is most of the time in star wars you have a droid along you have something in that place you don't have that in mandalorian there's a couple episodes with that one droid um but you don't have this droid that's along for the ride they could have done that he could have had a droid whatever but they really moved away from that trope and it's different for star wars usually we see or it's we see something or but we don't and i I just loved that they decided to kind of go off in a little bit of a different direction
0: right and it allowed all that space for the side story with the um like uh, the killer droid what's what's the ig11 ig11 thank you because mando hates droids right mm-hmm. he's had some kind of, i can't remember if it's explained but he's had some kind of because well, of the because of the war that he was saved from okay. the droids that attacked oh him. right 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 cuz the droids killed his parents and and made him a foundling essentially yeah so he has this hatred for droids um which kind of reminded me of uh, ripley. ripley and yeah, aliens right. yeah i was like oh that's a really cool callback there or like, related and um, and then the IG-11 that gets reprogrammed into a nurse droid and, and helps them out so much at the end was just a really cool plot to it. So it was cool that when they did bring in a droid, it was like this layered story. It wasn't just some like set dressing or whatever. And also, just briefly on the point of IG 11,
1: I think there's a lot of interesting parallels there with Mando's journey, and I think that's something that thematically is explored quite a bit. Which is that like you might be born one thing, but you don't have to die that same thing, right? Yeah, yeah. So like IG, you know, everybody knows IG 88, right? Everybody knows like Mm -hmm. what IG droids do. They're they're threatening, you know, freaky, freaky freakies. Um, And he was born to be a, a, he was created to be a bounty hunting murder machine, right? Um, and then he's reprogrammed, but like, not only is he reprogrammed, but Quill or Quill like nurses him into a new being. Like he, he starts him back at the beginning and he raises him like a child almost in that, in that short span of time to be something that he's not, that he didn't realize he could be. Um, and it's artificial cause he's a droid, right? But it's a nice parallel, I think, to Mando. Are you to Din. He's not
2: alive? Called- <laughs> oh my God. Oh it's
1: Blade Runner. Here we go. Honey, here yeah. we go. <laughs> is, is he manufactured or born? Um... <laughs> But so, so to me, there's a lot of parallels there with, with the character of, of Din, because Din, I mean, I think it's, it's like getting late. So we, I don't even know if we can get into this right now, but we do have another episode of this coming so we can get more into his character, I think, which we need to. But I think part of why that character is so fascinating and so iconic and so uh, relatable to so many people is like, he's so alone in some ways, right? Like he's just so, he's a completely rare bird, you know, like he was, he wasn't meant to be what he became. He became what he was because of conflict and war, and, and he was taken, and you know, and then and then he was set adrift as this bounty hunter because his planet was destroyed, and his ecosystem was destroyed, and he couldn't go home again, you know. And so he's just like his only. You realize when you see him interacting with Grogu and Grogu's playing with the little ball and the joystick. That's the only company he has had for any sustained period of time, probably in his entire adult life. Right, the only company that he would have had on the Razor Crest would have been the prisoners that he'd captured who are either in carbonite or, you know, in fear, but like, but either way, he hasn't just had companionship because he's been gone this whole time. He's been set adrift. And then when we see him in this, in the second season, I won't get into spoilers, but we see what that does to him. And we see what it does to, you know, to, to go away from something for so long. And when that thing changes and you don't fit in it anymore, like, who are you? Like, where, where do you fit in? And that constant interplay, you know, the, the fact that like this, this, this child whose family was destroyed goes on to like do such an. I mean, it's a huge thing to disobey what he did to do what he did at the end of season one. Like mm-hmm. that is a fucking big deal in mm-hmm. star Wars. Right. Um, and that, that one moment seals everything for him that seals the fact that he will be pursued until he is caught and captured by this enormous insidious empire that is still everywhere and has its fingers in every pot. Right. Um, and yet he does it because, like, he realizes in that moment that that's his truth, right? That, like, that he's not going to do to Grogu what the Empire did to him. To me, that's a very powerful moment. And to see uh, Din's character, you know, to the point where towards the end we see him without a mask for that moment, you know, we see him. Uh, but but even even after that, it's like he resumes who he was. He's not, like, he's not he's not sacrificing the essential elements of himself, but he is allowing us in a little bit to see what those essential elements are. Um, and I love that. And I love that how unapologetic he is. I love how he's like very clear that his blaster is, is a religious artifact for him. You know, that he's very proud of the fact that he doesn't take his mask off. It's not like a thing. It's like that, that is, that is his, his religious creed is that he does not do that in public. He's not, he's not apologetic for who he is. And that makes him super awkward in most company that he's in, right? Everybody who sees him is for the most part afraid of him because Mandalorians are like borderline indestructible and extremely powerfully equipped and they can kill fucking jedi knights like that's a pretty big deal right um and yet on the inside of that beskar is a really wonderful loving caretaker who uh i think i, I just i love that journey so much and i think i i i g i g 11's journey is a nice little dovetail to it i think
0: yeah um yeah really good points i didn't think about the child's story in that way i honestly i, I Because I'm oblivious to some things. I didn't even connect it with the whole foundling uh, connection between, uh, Din and, and, uh, and the child. That's really cool. Um, yeah. Speaking of IG, I had a couple more things before we go. Uh, IG 11 was designed to be, I think CGI initially. And they had this stand in like on a friggin' little rolling cart. They had his torso in his head and he would just kind of spun freely and they would bring him in for like lighting tests and stuff. And they ended up liking that puppet so much that they were like, Ah, fuck it. Let's just do this practically. And so they built the upper body puppet and were able to actually spin it, I think. Uh, You know, they put a couple of motors in it. Um, And then, of course, a lot of the full body, high action stuff is CGI, but that's another thing. Seamless.
1: Isn't it seamless? Seamless.
0: And they just kind of developed it organically as they were filming which i think is a really cool process when you see that uh speaking of the carbonite scene i just learned this today george lucas's likeness was putting carbonite in that scene when when the uh, when the bounty's going through them i didn't i didn't notice it i'm gonna have to go back and watch it but that's hilarious (laughs) um you know we didn't mention uh cara dune's character or gina carano's character cara dune what did you guys think of that character and how she was written into the show i guess i can go first <laughs> i don't think she had a lot of acting experience right she's like a mixed no, martial she,
2: artist no she she was cast as the lead in a steven soderbergh film called i can't remember the name of it but she 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 comes from mixed martial arts mm-hmm. but she's been in cinema in film for a long time okay
0: cool And the role the role was written for her nice yeah i liked i especially loved her physicality just the fact that you don't have to pretend to believe that she can whoop someone's ass. Like she's actually doing it for real and she's like ripped. I, I just love that about her character. And she's just, you know, she can hold her own against the Mandalorian and they just kind of agree to work together because otherwise one of them is going to die. <laughs> I like the episode where they're introduced to each other. That was like a really fun uh, fight. And um yeah, I really like her character.
1: I, again just briefly on her character it's, it's another parallel dovetailing thing with uh, with IG's journey and Din's journey because she's a former shock trooper right right so her her journey also is, is something where like she started as one thing and that thing follows her wherever she goes but she's no longer that thing but anytime people point out her tattoo you know she's brought back to that right and that that push and pull between where we where we came from and where we're going, I, th- I think, is like at the heart of this show, and it's at the heart of Grogu's journey. It's at the heart of the Empire's journey. It's at the heart of what will become the New Republic. It's at the heart of all of these different things going on. It's a it's it's amazing because like so much of Star Wars, uh, to me, is is like declamatory, right? Like so much of it, when it's at its worst points, and I'm not like a Star Wars apologist by any means. Like there's plenty of things I don't like about Star Wars. I think when it doesn't work well, it's largely because it's trying to like present like this is it's it's basically the opening scroll like we're watching a film that is the opening scroll it's like here's a lot of exposition and here's a lot of world building and like this is what this is what you got to kind of get get while you're here the prequels to me are like just so many layers of that that it's like almost impossible to watch because it's just like exposition 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 senate exposition exposition clone wars um but to me uh and, I, and i'm sure some of the parts in the sequels that people complain about um as you know, rightfully so are also there's just way too expositional but in Mandalorian, everything's in flux, and so there's no time to do any exposition on anything because, like, nothing is established, right? Not even the characters. Like, everything that's happening in the world in which the Mandalorian takes place is in a state of movement, right? We don't have an established, you know, dark side anymore. We don't have, like, we don't see Jedis for the most part. Like, it's, 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 this, it's this complete flux thing. Um, And the characters also, like I said, like everybody's going from one place to another place. And it's just this, this, it it feels more character centric. And I think that really works to its favor.
0: Yeah. I'm really excited to see what season three holds in store. And I'm really excited to talk about season two. Cause like you, um, I ha I was definitely much more sold on season two as it also didn't seem to go up and down. I felt like it started, you know, decently strong and just accelerated to the end to the eighth episode i was just like holy crap um yes and even some returning characters which i won't spoil and we'll talk about next time i think they brought a lot more out of those characters in season two and like i didn't even like some of those characters in the first season by the second when i was sold on them so i'm looking forward to talking about that
1: and plus getting to see Carl Weathers again and something that it's just, Carl like, Weathers is just, is just awesome. I love him. Adore him. And, and I'm not surprised they wrote that character into more cause he was initially supposed to just be there in the beginning. Right. And then they're like, ah, okay. He's going to be like a recurring cast. <laughs> okay. He's just great. He's just <laughs> yeah, he's amazing. So good. And, in an interview, and then he ends up directing.
2: Yeah. Scenes, and he directs uh, an episode, episode seven, two. I think. In yeah. Two? A
1: huge. One. Oh,
0: really? Oh,
1: cool. Yeah, it does a bang up job with it. And, and he said that this is one of the most important things he's
0: ever done in his entire life. You know, like, that's awesome. He's also aged, like, all of six years since, like, Prender. Like, I don't know how that guy eats, but man. He's 72. Like, they, that's, that's crazy. Great. That's uh, crazy. Yeah. That dude does not age. Um, I, My uh, secret hopes for season three are that they get, they let Werner Herzog direct an episode. I would just I would just oh, die. Wow. That would be awesome. Maybe allow him a little narration over the top. It would <laughs> just be great. <laughs> <laughs> it would like make you want to kill yourself afterwards but it'd just be so good a long time ago <laughs> galaxy away. i can't even try to do his voice but man i love every time when he you were saying how says anything
1: how he was pushing to see the
0: physical puppet all i could think mm-hmm. was like i would
2: like to see the baby i would like to see the- <laughs> okay he was
0: just This, this may be like slightly out of place, but I just I have to read my favorite quote. And I will do this for the benefit of the uh, viewers because this is not easily pulled up on the trivia on IMDb. You have to pull up the script of the series for whatever reason. And I also can't pull it up as a YouTube clip. But this is an episode seven, where the plan where uh, what's Carl Weathers character again? Gree or something like I, I actually was just going to look that up because I can't remember. What it yeah, was. I had it written down. But anyways, oh, Griff Carga. Griff, um, yeah. Griff you think Creed? Apollo they, Creed? They, <laughs> <laughs> <was thinking> <laughs> but their plan is to fool the client and pretend like they have the baby and then, you know, shoot everyone, whatever, get out of there. And that scene, I wanted to read this quote real quick. I've read it to you guys before, and it's my absolute favorite because it really highlights this whole dark empire, like almost like the Nazis, like they really embrace that dark side of it. So as they're sitting down, and the client says, please sit, it is a shame that your people suffered so. Just as in this situation, it was all avoidable. Why did Mandalore resist our expansion? The Empire improves every system it touches, judged by any metric. Safety, prosperity, trade, opportunity, peace. Compare Imperial rule to what is happening now. Look outside. Is the world more peaceful since the Revolution? I see nothing but death and chaos. And then, of course, he finishes that off with... Patrick, the baby... I would like to see the baby, (laughs) but man, that the way, and the way he, he doesn't move his face, but his eyes go off to the side. Like he's looking outside, but again, he's justifying and excusing a like violent authoritarian colonial empire. And I, I just love the way that he does that and the way he kind of spins it to make you be like oh yeah is the empire bad like maybe maybe the things are under control the trains are running on time it's this whole thing of convincing the masses that like even though you're oppressing them and you're terrible it's really good for them like i just love the his that the history that that statement is steeped in and there's another really good moment like that from a different character in season two which i'll definitely mention but yeah that's probably my favorite part of the entire thing in terms of themes
1: Mm-hmm. I love that moment too. that, that, that and his delivery there is so fucking great.
0: Just amazing. And
1: it's, and it's so dead on because like, the, like the, the, the antagonists in films are at their weakest when they act like they know they're evil, right? Because like nobody is evil in their own story. Like everybody is doing something that to them makes sense, like something that to, to their worldview was the right thing to do. And when he says that, he is correct from his perspective, right? From where he sits as somebody who sits on the top of everything or who sat on the top of everything – the world is a better place from, from where he sees it, right? He doesn't see it from the perspective of the people outside fighting. Um, and it's uh, so it makes sense that he would have that view and you're right and, and you hear him saying that and you're all like, well, and in some ways he kind of has a point and that's what's so fucked up about it, you know? And
0: really, he's not even saying that he's right. What he's saying is that look at what happened after we lost power he's he's making the case that they should be back in power and that they'll they'll fix everything and that they'll bring the galaxy back under peace you know it's it's like uh yeah i mean it's kind of like the roman empire concept of uh what's the famous quote about peace that the romans had yeah i'll (laughs) think about it anyways
2: i just think uh Put us back in power in thirty days. We'll have it fixed. It's true,
1: yeah, and that's the justification used by Mao Zedong. It's a justification used by Pol Pot. It's a justification used by fucking everybody who uses authoritarian rule to get what they want. You know, it's it's the idea that like you know you will have food on your table and you will be safe, Um, and they don't you know talk about the vehicles through which they achieve that, right? Which is suppression and horrible shit. But yeah, it's just it's just it's just great. Like the, and then you have the doctor character who is a a fucking clone of John abdullah my co-host for Just Wing It, by the way. Oh like right, oh yeah. the same person, totally. totally. Um, but he—it's uh, just another character who like goes
0: through another journey of his own throughout the series in the second season as well. It's
1: just—it's just fucking great, and we could talk about it all night. But yeah, you know,
0: I know we gotta—we gotta wrap. Oh yeah, sorry. The quote I was thinking of was Tac- Tacitus, which who said uh, at the end of this quote that the Romans create a desert and then they call it peace. You know, so mm-hmm. it's like this peace by superior force and by murdering everyone, destroying everything. It's like a very old concept. Anyways, Dan, I
1: believe you mean Tacitus. Oh yes, I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> Giancarlo,
1: <de l'Esposito. laughs>
0: Cool. Well, thanks
2: Ussi for lasagna. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Thanks for indulging this uh, season one and we'll do season two. And I'm excited to see what happens in season three and everything else that Star Wars has down the line. I'm, I'm back in, I'm in baby. Yeah, Yeah, me too.
2: If you would like to listen to all of our reviews, go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com forward slash support and sign up to become a member. Our membership monthly subscription start at just $2 a month. For those of you who already support us via Patreon, we thank you. Beginning March 1st, our entry level tier will start at $4. There is still time to sign up at just $2 a month. All $2 a month patrons will be grandfathered in with no change to their monthly patronage. Sign up today.